podcast, episode 3 of season 1 on the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918. My name is Benjamin Kitchings. There's a lot of podcasts out there. Thank you for listening to mine. I have a question. Have you ever done anything amazing with your life that you didn't intend to do? I have a friend that started a farmer's market. I mean, that's about as close as I can get. Gavriello Principe certainly never intended to start World War One. It's a well-known fact that his assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand is what got World War One started. That's why I asked if you've ever done anything with your life without ever intending to do it. What you're going to see here is you're going to see a continuation of, you know, one of these crown heads of Europe that simply isn't willing or able really to accept the fact that industrial revolution means that your people expect different things out of life. Serbia was pried loose out of the Ottoman Empire by two clans, um with basically unpronounceable names. But essentially what was going on was that, you know, neither one of these clans thought that the people needed to rule anything. And that had the Industrial Revolution not taken place at all, they would have been fine with that. They totally would have been fine with that. Now, Serbia was very much unstable as we're going to see in a minute in the 1880s serbia was very unstable politically partly because the people who lived there or most of the people who lived there were very small farmers and also partly because it was right next to the ottoman empire and the ottoman empire as a political entity essentially did not or reluctantly recognized serbia's right to even exist as a separate state. Politics was essentially an outgrowth of the Industrial Revolution and also sort of a filtering down of the Enlightenment principles and other philosophes from Europe. Now what would be happening would be you would have basically the workers from the factories mixing with intellectuals and more liberal people. And the two camps would discover that they actually, indeed, had interests in common. And this would be happening all across Europe. And what you would notice, if you were to take a step back and look at Europe as a whole, is the the more industrialized the economy was, the more robust the political debate was and the more, for lack of a better word, the more liberal the European parliaments tended to be. And I don't mean they were all liberal and I don't mean some weren't more liberal than others. And I'm not even talking about, in a lot of cases, I'm talking about liberalism in a way that today we wouldn't think of that as a liberal principle at all. 
However, I'm not talking about that right now. I'm talking about, you know, these people, like, for example, you might have the franchise, might be going out to more people, you might have voting, you might have an enumerated constitution, and so on and so forth. So essentially what you had was all across Europe you had this movement towards popular government, or at least to examine the possibility of popular government. In Serbia, the Serbians, the Serbian government, that is the king in the 1880s, was not very much was against that. The reason it was unstable was, frankly, because of the infighting between these two clans, which more or less thought of Serbia as essentially its own private possession. One begins to see this the further east in Europe one gets. In fact, with the Ottoman Empire itself, you saw this with the Sultan. So really, that's kind of like a hallmark between east and west, or I guess like a governmental dividing line between the east and west of Europe, is that in eastern Europe, the, the crown heads of Europe at this point thought of the place they were ruling as though it was their own property, whereby, say, like in England or Germany or, you know, I guess France, well, especially France, because France didn't have a monarch, but, you know, there you had a more established uh, rule of the parliament, especially in England. Whereas in the eastern part of the continent, they more or less thought of the place they were ruling as their own private dominion. And again, that was part of what was, you know, the big problem. And part of the, I mean, part of the source of the conflicts that led up to um, World War One. On the day Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife Sophie stood on a platform in Europe, Europe was at peace and had been at peace for a pretty long period of time given European history. 37 days later, Europe would be at war. I mean, it was really that fast. It's almost like a binary condition had been met. And the reason why is fascinating and sad. And I'm going to delve into that in this podcast. Thank you for listening to the History Voyager. I would tell you to enjoy it, but I feel kind of weird telling people to enjoy a podcast that's literally about this much death and destruction. But thank you for listening. The Serbian political culture had been greatly changed by the advent of political parties and newspapers in the 1880s. There's that expanding political consciousness I keep talking about. Remember from the last episode, I was talking about expanding political consciousness and expansion in literacy? Equally as disruptive to Serbia was the modern, movable-type printing press. This gave rise to manifestos and party platforms from things across the political spectrum. And this was very much, like other things in Europe, brand new. The difference was that the monarchy in Serbia wasn't very stable, and this was because of its position 
next to the Ottoman Empire and also the fact that a lot of its peasants were basically small farmers. It really didn't have what you want to call industry or a lot of commerce to speak of. And of course, like so many of his compatriots, the king of Serbia reacted to these movable type newspapers and these manifestos the way a lot of them did. He reacted with very autocratic measures and just generally unfavorably. Remember, the royalty in Europe at that time was very conservative. And by conservative, I don't mean conservative the way that we might mean conservative today. Because today, even the conservatives today believe in things like somebody's right to hold a job and at least some form of self-determination, at least in America. I mean, that's not at all what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is he really thought his people were essentially his property. And that's, you know, a huge difference. A disastrous war with Bulgaria in 1885, a divorce from his wife, and also the king's steadfast refusal to appoint any people from the dominant so-called radical party to his cabinet led to the weakening of his throne. The crown prince was able to come to power in 1893 owing to a bizarre coup d'etat, basically. At this coup, the ministers were cordially invited to dinner with the crown prince where they were invited to toast to his good health or be arrested what a choice in reality his father had engineered the entire thing from the start but you know it's debatable whether or not the kid actually knew that from the years 1897 to 1900 this gradually became a more formal like arrangement, eventually being called a duocracy or a duarchy. That's an interesting term. Anyway, so the two of them essentially shared power, and it became even more formal as the son, Alexander, just ignored the liberal or more liberal, you know, parts of the constitution of Serbia. There was a very quick rollback of uh, the liberal reforms that had been made where Alexander decided to basically ignore the judiciary and then he decided to openly plot to kill politicians he didn't like. He also ended secret ballots. He rescinded freedom of the press. He closed down newspapers he didn't like. And also the Radical Party. You remember that popular party called the Radical Party? The Radical Party found itself increasingly left out in the cold. So what does this mean? What does this all mean for Serbia? Well, I'll tell you what it means. It means that you have a royal family that is simply basically willfully ignoring the trends in Europe. They see their own property as their own property. They see the people who live on that property, i.e. the people of Serbia, as something sort of like slaves or, I guess, serfs or whatever. But also, you have this incredibly unstable situation because 
I mean, when Alexander deposed the king, this was just part of a tradition. This was simply just part of a tradition of one king deposing the other. I mean, an amazing number of 19th century royals in Serbia did not die of old age or did not die peacefully. Coups were almost essentially a, basically, a way of life. And so the people of Serbia were looking at all this, and they were looking at their lives here in Serbia, and they were writing about it. And, of course, the writing about it, you know, was a new thing. And none of the kings liked it. And it was adding to the instability because it was so new and because nothing like that had ever happened before. And what I mean is the kings didn't know how to react. They didn't know how to take it in stride or, or whatever. And of course, you know, everybody who's anywhere close to political, and of course, your students are political, usually, and because, you know, they're entering the world and they're examining this new thing called politics, which is something you can do if you're not busy just trying to live on the farm or survive. Anyway, so they're examining all this and they're essentially parroting the instability and they're jockeying for position. And, you know, this is the backdraft. This is the, the backdrop, rather, of all this. Um, the milieu of all this, if you will. And it's amazing, when you research it, how actually unstable it was. And I think part of the reason it was so unstable was because the powers that be in Serbia just really didn't think, oh, okay, the people are going to revolt. And, like, they always thought they were going to be in charge, I guess is what I'm saying. They never envisioned themselves as being anything other than the people on top. And I'll give you an example of what I mean about that, about how the powers that be in Serbia just assumed they could basically flip out. Um, Alexander married a woman named Queen Draga, I guess is how you say that. She was the daughter of an engineer. Okay, so what is that? She's a commoner. That's right. He married for love. Now, the royals, or I guess the nobles, if they had thought about it, if they'd and maybe I'm just being modern here because, I mean, you know, look at the royal family in England and they're basically freaking out because Prince Harry married a star. But anyway, so the nobles in Serbia basically flipped out because Alexander married a, the queen, married, you know, the queen was a um, basically a commoner. And I don't know if they would have flipped out nearly as hard if they had thought, even just a little bit, that 
you know, there's a possibility that they could they could lose it all. You know, they could they could really lose it all. They didn't like that she was ten years older. They didn't like that she was unpopular with Belgrade society. It was widely believed that she was infertile and she was well known to have many sexual liaisons with different people. And actually, um, the interior minister even said that he told Alexander that you can't marry her. She, she's been everybody's mistress, mine included. So, I mean, this was very well, you know, well recorded in society. And, and as far as, you know, there was quite a big history here. And, of course, Alexander was never one to pass up the opportunity to alienate people slapped his interior minister across the face. Of course, that meant that later the interior minister wouldn't feel any guilt at all about joining the regicide conspiracy, which of course he did. But the happy couple was married on the 23rd of June, 1900 in Belgrade. After the wedding, there was a systematic removal of the king's friends and the queen's enemies from the high-ranking civil service and military. When the king died in 1901, it was something of great relief. There was, in 1900, a brief increase in the prince's popularity, which then cratered in April 1901 when it was revealed that the queen's rumors of pregnancy were fabricated to achieve this popularity. Apparently, the people of Serbia did not like to feel like they were being made a fool out of. To counteract this, there was a failed attempt to smuggle a baby into the capital and claim that it was theirs. The king also tried to build up a sort of a cult of admiration around the queen, which failed miserably. By 1903, the only success the king had had was uniting essentially all of Serbia against he and the queen. Basically, the entire population resented the press freedoms being rescinded. They resented the man acting like a tin-pot dictator. They resented the fact that he had suspended the Constitution several times and then put in draconian laws and then, you know, acted like they were always there and everything was fine and everything was normal. Basically, he was entirely unpopular. Now king, Alexander never had a good relationship with the military. And it would end up costing him dearly. They never forgot how he got rid of high-ranking officials when he got married. They never forgot how he pruned back officer pay. And the thing is, the military in a place like Serbia was how young people got ahead in the world. It was the avenue to get ahead in a world that was basically rural and very traditional. And they were very upset about that. And then, during the summer of 1901, a military conspiracy crystallized around a young lieutenant in the Serbian army. The man's name was Dagmutin 
Dmitry Jevish. He had been appointed to a post on the general staff immediately after his graduation from the Serbian Military Academy. This was taken as a sure sign of a great esteem in which he was held by his superiors. The young man was made for a political world of conspiracy. He was obsessively secretive, utterly dedicated to his military and political work, and ruthless in his methods and icily composed in moments of crisis. The man whose nickname was Ipis or Apis was not a man who could have held sway over a great popular movement, but he did possess an abundance in capacity within small groups and private circles. This was how the coup was going to go off. He needed to win and groom disciples to confer in them like a sense of importance. They were getting rid of a king after all. Perhaps the other European powers knew this. Perhaps they knew about the conspiracy to kill the king and his older wife because they kept ignoring the king and his wife. They kept distancing them. The first plot was to take place at a ball. Letters crisscrossed Europe to the different capitals as the ambassadors to the Serbians from the other countries would write their capitals and tell them about this impending plan. Obviously, the army wasn't too good at keeping a secret. Was it that much easier for them to keep a secret from an unpopular king than a popular king? If the king had been popular, would he have lived? Probably. But we might not know. This network of army officers, called the Regicide Network, was very plugged in at court, but it wasn't the only force. There was sort of an anti-regicide clique, which was loyal to the king, if in name only. Kind of sort of the way you might respect the office, if not the man. However, he was very unpopular. This anti-regicide group centered around the town of Niz and produced an anti-conspiracy, sort of a manifesto. It was led by the captain... Milan Novakovic. In Serbia, the regicidal faction held so much control that he was actually arrested several times before he passed away of mysterious circumstances, along with a male relative in 1907. This led to a huge scandal in the liberal and leftist press, which they never really got to the bottom of by the 1914 assassination attempt. I'd like to close the episode out by talking a little bit about Serbia. It's easy to look at this in retrospect and see that, of course, it was a nation that was going to fail. But it was put together with the idea that it would stick around by someone, by the leaders, powers that be. It's easy to look at your present and see that it's going to project in the future forever, but that didn't exactly happen for Serbia. I'm going to get into a little bit of that in the next episode, but for right now, I think we've gotten deep enough in the weeds for this almost 25 minutes of a very little explored part of why World War I happened. Remember that My whole basic thesis of this podcast is that 
without World War One, the Spanish flu never would have taken hold as it did. Okay, well, I'll see you next time. This is Ben Kitchings signing off. I'll have some news for you in the next episode. I know I've been promising you that. But I'll have some news for you. If not in the next episode, then the one after that. Alright, really exciting stuff. We're growing over here at the uh, History Voyager. Thank you and uh, see you around.